Hey there, friends. Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to invite you to our next Collaboration Zone Zoom party. This is a free Zoom chat get together with all of my entrepreneur friends in the Rise and Recovery Network, where we can share mind and business growth tips, strategies, and you get to network with other entrepreneurs of all experience levels. So if you want to level up your business and get connected, book your spot today. Head on over to www. The road forward slash collaboration zone. When we recover, we are returning to a normal state of health, mind, or strength. We begin the process of regaining control over something that was lost. Welcome to the Road Beyond Recovery podcast, and my name is Tamar, your host. Have you ever felt like you were meant for more? Well, I help people discover their purpose so they can follow their passion and realize what they are truly capable of. My mission is to empower people in recovery to embrace their authentic selves, live up to their true potential, and answer the question, what lies beyond recovery for you? Hey guys, how's it going? Tamar here from the Road Beyond Recovery podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. Uh, Without you guys, I would not have a show. And so, you know, it's always so much appreciated that you guys are following me along on this journey and my journey has been continuing to evolve and change. And, you know, I just want to keep being authentic and vulnerable and really talking about what's going on, right? The the speed bumps that I hit, the highs that I experience, you know, it's all part of the journey. Um, I have some exciting guests coming up. And of course, today is no different. I'm chatting with my friend, John Loxley, aka Ren Coy from the Life in Recovery podcast. We had a phenomenal chat, but before we get into that, If you haven't done so already, make sure you sign up for the Collaboration Zone Zoom call. This is an area, a space where you can network with like-minded individuals. We do a little bit of training. We do a speed connection round, which you get to introduce who you are, what you do, what services you provide, who you serve, all those kind of fun things. And you also get to ask for some favors, feedback, and advice from the rest of the group. So this is just... This is a place for you to meet people that can help you level up in your business or complement what you're already doing. And then at the end of these sessions, we round it off with 10 minutes of a hot seat where you get to volunteer to share a roadblock you might be facing right now and have the rest of the group members uh, have some input and maybe help you overcome that roadblock. And then of course, we also do member training where you get to volunteer to do a 10 minute training segment on an area of your expertise and share your knowledge with the rest of the group. And of course, these are aired as podcast episodes. So this is your time to shine and to get what you do out to the world. I just have to start off with, I thoroughly have enjoyed this transition from the road to health to the road beyond recovery because I continue to get to chat with amazing people, like-minded individuals who have that same passion for recovery and really living up to your full potential. 
you know, which is something that since I've discovered my purpose in life, I have been able to fulfill as well. And it's been so many changes, so much living outside my comfort zone. And I just love chatting with people who are doing the same. And John Loxley is no different. He goes by Renkoy. Uh, he has a bunch of books out there. We talk about those. And he's from the Life in Recovery podcast. In today's episode, he shares his story of overcoming addiction. We also talk about 12-step programs, psychedelic treatment, mental health and trauma. We talk about our inability to handle our emotions, right? I believe that that is why I drank as well, as I just didn't want to feel those emotions. And then we talk about how the opposite of resentment is contentment. And of course, we get into his newest book. So without further ado, enjoy the show. Welcome back. We are hanging out with John Loxley. How you doing, John? Very well, thank you, Tamar. Nice to meet you. Nice to see you in person. It is so great to have you on the show. So why don't you start off for my listeners that do not know you? Um, you know, what is it you do today? Uh, you know, just give yourself a quick introduction. Yeah, okay. So I am the host of the Life in Recovery podcast, first and foremost. Um, and as a result of that, um, I've written a number of books. Um, so I'm, I can class myself as an author now because I've got a book published, which is very nice to say. Um, so my book, my new book, uh, All Is One, The Science and Spirituality of Consciousness, will be out in the stores in March 2022. And um, I'm also a life coach as well. Just uh, got my life coaching certification and uh, just started uh, working with my first few clients. Nice. I love what you do. We have very similar passions. Now, I always like to kind of look back because my story, I had a really great upbringing. Um, I know that a lot of people think that in order to fall into drug and alcohol addiction, that you have to have a terrible traumatic upbringing. And that's true for a lot of people. But for me, that wasn't my story. So I always think it's kind of important to share that side of the story. So so many other people can relate. What was life like growing up for you? Um, I mean, objectively speaking, you know, from the outside looking in, life was pretty good for me as well, really. I mean, I I did grow up in an alcoholic household, but my dad wasn't um, a violent drunk or anything like that, you know, kind of like my worst memories, really, um, of him being uh, drunk were just him not being there, you know, like being in bed unwell or sometimes coming in drunk, but never never particularly like nasty or anything it was like it was more fun when he was drunk I kind of remember it as um but one of the things that I know now that I didn't know then um and as I said to you before the podcast we my me and my dad did a, a podcast um, about six months ago and through him telling his story to me and through me kind of you know asking the right questions and and saying and filling in the gaps for him from my perspective, he was able to see that he abandoned me within the within the relationship, um, or that he wasn't there, you know, emotionally. Um, he was there physically, but he wasn't there kind of mentally and emotionally, and um, and that is what affected me the most. I think you know that's what where we were talking about before the podcast started about emotional intelligence, and that is where. I believe that my lack of emotional intelligence kind of 
came from and, and began, you know. So despite having pretty much everything I ever wanted materially, you know, I was like, I was an, an only child and spoiled rotten, basically. <laughs> um, I wasn't happy. That's the thing, you know, I was, I never ever went to the doctors and said I was depressed. I never did that, you know, even in my adult life, but I was depressed. And that was the thing I was, um, you know, I was, I was living under that kind of gray cloud. And I don't know if you know anything about the UK, but I come from a place called Manchester mm-hmm. and Manchester, they call it the rainy city. So I just thought that was miserable because I lived in the rainy city. <laughs> <laughs> But then when I moved from Manchester to Leeds to go to university, Leeds is a much brighter, sunnier place. And I was still depressed there. So obviously it had nothing to do with the weather. And when, when, I, when I moved from home to my hometown to, uh, to Leeds, my drinking and my drug, well, my drinking escalated and I started using drugs as well. And, um, and the whole thing just escalated, basically. It was, you know, it went from, I suppose, the way I the way I've always explained it is like the shackles were off, you know. When you when you leave home, I always said to myself because I I felt controlled as well at home, you know. Like I've got um, my mom is um, she's a very very loving mother, but she's very um, anxious about me especially, you know. She's like sick to death of worried to death, should I say, of um, of me kind of like hurting myself or whatever, you know. Typical mother, I suppose, but. I, I think what she didn't realize was that because she was, I felt she was quite controlling. I rebelled against that. And I, and I just felt as though as soon as I left home, I was going to do whatever I wanted, you know, and that's what I did. So yeah, the drinking ramped up, uh, drugs became a massive feature, but only I was never addicted to drugs. It was more, I used drugs to enable me to drink more. Um, and the reason why I was drinking, I believe was because I was just trying to, avoid my feelings trying to mask them um and the ultimate thing about drinking is it takes you to oblivion doesn't it and oblivion was where i wanted to be because in oblivion you don't feel anything i didn't know any of this obviously i had no idea that this was what was going on i just thought i was having a good time but um you know yes i think it was always there in the back of my mind that maybe i was an alcoholic simply because my dad was uh by this time, I mean, my dad was in the fellowship when I was 10. So I just thought, you know, well, I, I saw there was, a, there was a plaque at the side of his bed. He went to his first AA meeting and then the next thing I kind of remember, and this could have been days, weeks, months afterwards, there was a plaque at the side of his bed and it was a serenity prayer, praying hands. And uh, my dad had gone from being out in the pub after work to going to these meetings every night, pretty much. And I just thought he's turned religious, you know. He's, he's turned religious, and he's gone. He's he's, he's weak because he needs, you know, he needs these people. Um, and that was it, really. I never really, never really gave it any more consideration. And then I started drinking not long after he kind of joined the fellowship. And to call it a very long story short, because one thing I really don't like is drink logs. I I'm not interested in how much somebody drank what they drank, where they drank. What I'm interested in is why they drank and the you know the causes and conditions behind that. And what I'm also interested in is what's the solution to that problem. So the very long story, very short, is that it got 
worse and worse and worse to a point where I just couldn't do it anymore. And um, I uh, was advised, really, I suppose, by my partner at the time to leave the country and we ended up moving to Australia. <clears throat> and um, it's a, the, the most important part of my story, really, is that the morning after my last drink, so the night before we left for Australia, I got blasted, you know, and um, I woke up the next morning. I blacked out. And to this day, I have no idea what happened that night. And I woke up the next morning and I just knew that the game was over. I just was like, I'm, I'm done with this. And I, I walked to the bathroom to freshen up and I overheard my sister, my partner and her sister having a conversation. And her, part, her sister said, you hate it when it gets like that, don't you? And she said, yeah, I do. I'm going to leave him if he doesn't stop. And that was my rock bottom at that point. Because I desperately didn't want to be on my own you know and I went back into the bedroom and I got down on my knees and I prayed and it was the first time I'd ever said a really sincere please help me I can't do this anymore you know and I didn't believe in God at the time I was just that that was the surrender you know the moment of surrender and that was over 10 years ago and I've never had a drink ever since and you know it was in hindsight that was my spiritual awakening and again, I didn't know any of this stuff. You know, I went to Australia. I spent a year out there. No fellowship, no no uh, recovery, just abstinent, you know. And uh, I went from being on that pink cloud to homicidal and suicidal within the space of a year, which tells you everything you need to know, doesn't it? You know, I wasn't drinking. I wasn't using drugs. I wasn't smoking. I was eating well. I was doing loads of exercise, but I wanted to kill myself and I wanted to kill everybody around me. So that tells you that it's got nothing to do with the substance that you're using or the behavior that you're using to avoid those emotions, you know. And um, yeah, I, I rang my dad from Australia and I said, look, you know, this is what's going on for me. And he said, there's somewhere where you can go for that, son. And I knew he meant 12-step fellowships. And I thought, religion, weak people again, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, no, thank you. And, uh, I, I, you know, I can do this on my own. I'm strong, you know. And I wasn't because, well, I was, conversely, because eventually I did pluck up the courage to go to my first meeting. And that was only when I got back to the UK after a year in Australia. And I had my emotional rock bottom at that point which again tells you everything that you need to know. <laughs> so um, my emotional rock bottom was, as I said, like two options, drink again or kill myself. And I chose the third option that presented itself, which was go to a meeting. So I went to a meeting and it was the best decision that I've ever made in my life uh, without a shadow of a doubt. That was on uh, the 5th of August, 2010. And um, yeah, I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about the recovery aspect of it, but that's all I need to say really is that that decision, going to that first meeting, changed my life forever. Yeah, and congratulations. I mean, you you mentioned the emotions and we talked about that before the interview, like you said, is, you know, we use substances because we have an inability to handle our emotions. And I remember my first year of recovery because I did the same thing when I drank for the first time I fell in love because I'm like hey I can be confident I can be funny I felt like I, it was a completely a complete like out of body experience and but I remember in my first year of recovery I cried more 
than I ever have my whole entire life. And I mean, we were talking about emotional intelligence and even how, you know, when you've got almost a decade of recovery in you, you're still like those emotions still hit you sometimes and you realize, okay, there's a lot of work to do. And it is a lot of work, continuously work like we talked about. But, you know, what was early recovery like for you? Well, just to you know, comment on what you just said there, you're never ever going to get emotional intelligence until you start looking at your emotions. And this is something that I've started to do really, really recently, because I was recognizing that um, I wasn't reacting, I I was reacting to my emotions all the time, and I wasn't responding to them in a kind and compassionate way. Um, And I still do, you know, to this day, but I'm now starting to gain a, um, a deeper level of emotional intelligence because I'm looking, I'm, I'm consciously thinking about what emotion it is at the time that I'm feeling and that I'm expressing. And I'm con- and I'm also consciously thinking, well, what's the opposite to that emotion? So we were talking before the podcast about resentments. You know, it's, it was revelatory to me to understand that contentment is the opposite of resentment. So whenever I get a resentment now, I start to think to myself, okay, I'm feeling resentful. I want to be content. I want to be happy. So how do I move towards that emotion? And, you know, the steps that I take are first and foremost, turn it over to my higher power, say the serenity prayer. Second, uh, speak to somebody, whether it's my partner or over the phone. Um, And then third, do some writing about it, you know, and really kind of turn it over, do some more praying, praying on it. So that's a process that I was taught in my early recovery. And I did it in my early recovery. You know, my level of serenity in my early recovery was unbelievable. You know, it was like, they call it the pink cloud for a reason because you are flying high. You are, if you if you really want recovery, you're doing everything that you've been, that's being suggested. You know, I remember, I you know, the Just For Today card, I used to, I had that in my pocket and everywhere I went, um, you know, if things were starting to get on top of me, I'd get my Just For Today card out and I'd read that and I'd say the serenity prayer over and over. So it's no wonder I felt good <laughs> because that's what I was doing all the time. You know, 10 years down the line, I don't do that, you know, and that's what I've I've gone back to doing. That's what I've started to do. If I'm in a traffic jam now and, you know, and I'm thinking to myself, bloody hell, I want to get home, you know, I've been stuck here for half an hour uh, F in this, F in that, you know, like my, 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 my mind's screaming at everybody. I've got the road rage, you know, I'm giving daggers to everybody that's going driving past me. I, I stop and I say the serenity prayer and I think to myself, okay, what is the opposite of impatience? Gratitude. So let's be grateful. Let's be grateful that I've actually got half an hour to just sit and relax after a stressful day. And this is, you know, this is miracles. This is for me, you know, like, for somebody who was was kind of going through life at a million miles an hour and always wanting to, you know, achieve the next thing, achieve the next thing, achieve the next thing, to, to be able to slow down and, and sit back in my life and actually take stock of what's going on around me, it's unbelievable. So in, 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 other, in, in answer to your question, early recovery was great. It was fantastic. Um, then I started doing the work, you know, got a sponsor, got stuck into um, taking the steps and uh, what he what he helped me to help me to realize also is you know it talks about the Jacqueline Hyde character doesn't it in, in the book and he said you know 
actually there's somebody local to me who might be listening to this podcast and he says this all the time which is very similar to what my sponsor told me he says uh it isn't that you're a Jacqueline and Hyde character it's just that you when you drank alcohol it made a sick mind go public and i think that's a really really good way of putting it because i had a very very sick mind and i didn't know it and that sick mind was a result of me not being able to manage my emotions my emotions were constantly bubbling up to the surface my mind didn't know what to do with them or how to handle them or how to respond to them and they were just coming out you know sideways all the time put a drink on top of that and drugs on top of that and you've just got this you know tasmanian devil crazy like aggressive and my my partner my 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 wife my ex-wife she said to me um you know, she said, you're such a lovely guy without alcohol, but when you drink, you're like a monster. And that's not a very nice thing to hear, you know. And um, even hearing that, I didn't stop drinking straight away. You know, I still, I still carried on for a few years after that. But, um, yeah, I mean, once, once I'd kind of, you know, taken the steps and was kind of deep into my recovery, go into plenty of meetings, you know, a minimum of three meetings a week, which is what I've always continued to do. Um, You know, uh, helping others, well, not helping others, sharing in meetings, doing service. The problem was I hadn't, I didn't quite have the recovery that I thought that I had. And how, when that became very apparent was a couple of years into my recovery, my marriage ended. So that person that I'd been with throughout the whole of my drinking we got um, married pretty much straight away when I came into recovery. And, you know, obviously I started to change and maybe it's fair to say we just didn't go on the journey together. Um, but the what happened, we grew apart basically, you know, and um, it was more my, my doing than hers. And eventually, you know, the kind of wheels came off and, and the marriage ended and, there was loads of guilt and shame around it for me. Like I just was like, you know, I felt so shameful that I'd kind of like hurt my best friend and that, you know, she'd stuck with me through all that and, um, and embarrassed really that I couldn't be the person that I wanted to be for her. And I'm glad now in hindsight that we, that we split up because she's gone on to have a, a, a great career and I'm, I don't speak to her anymore, but I'm sure she's happy and I'm very, very happy in my life. Um, but at that point, I, I wanted to drink. You know, I was working in central London at the time and every time I walked past the pub at night, I kept thinking to myself, I'll just go in there, have a drink and take this pain away. And again, it tells you everything you need to know, doesn't it? I couldn't deal with the pain. And what my sponsor said to me at the time, which was fantastic, uh, was, are you working the program? And I was quite annoyed at that question. <laughs> I was like, I was like, how dare you? <laughs> Am I working the program? Do you not see how many meetings I go to? Do you not see how many service positions I've got? You know? And he said, no, the program. He said, the program is praying, meditating, taking inventory, sponsoring people you know instead are you doing any of those things and um i wasn't you know i didn't have a relationship with a higher power like i i was giving every morning i'd get on my knees and give lip service to something that i kind of believed in 
anyway, I did what was suggested and I got down to praying correctly in my mind, which was actually sincerely having a conversation with a higher power of my own understanding. I learned to meditate, which was an absolute, you know, just a revelation um, to not all I could, all I could do initially was sit for about 30 seconds. <laughs> that was it. Two minutes at the most, you know, and, and, and a few years ago I did a 10 day silent meditation retreat. So, you know, to go from there to there in 10 years, you know, it just shows the, the, the power of, of recovery. I started taking inventory um, every night and send my inventory to my sponsor via um, a text message. Um, and most importantly, started to sponsor people and that was the, the the turning point in my recovery was was handing it back you know was giving giving what i'd been freely given and once i started to do that that was when my life totally transformed and i think you know you make a good point in there that a lot of us in recovery we go in we ride that pink cloud for a little while and then it's kind of like okay you know i've got this and we get complacent i spent five years being complacent and i think continuously doing step groups saved my life because there was times in there I'm like what am I doing all this for I mean just to settle for a life that I'm not happy with and you know so I actually as a result of that complacency as a result of people that cared about me enough to hurt my feelings and say what are you doing or what are you not doing I started doing those the, the things that I did in early recovery but just a little bit more seriously and that ultimately led to me discovering my purpose and what I do today. And I know you do a lot of things, but you know, when did you finally kind of discover your calling and, you know, giving back to others, doing the podcast, the life coaching and all that kind of stuff? Well, exactly the same thing that happened to you happened to me. So five years in, I was kind of, you know, I'd, I'd, I was doing okay. I wasn't, I wasn't happy. I was doing all right. I was, I was sober. Um, I was single. Um, I was living in a in a flat in London with um, with a housemate that I didn't particularly like. Um, I didn't like my job, and um, I decided that I was going to completely change my life. and 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 I, I went to visit my friends um, in Italy, and they basically one you know my, my good friend Massey just said to me, um, "How about you come and live with us?" in uh in Gran Canaria because we're gonna go move to Gran Canaria there'll be a room for you you can just come out there you can stay for as long as you like you should you can get a job out there you can you know work whatever you want to do so I just thought sod it I'm gonna do it so I went back to the UK I handed in my notice at work I was uh earning earning a really good wage working in sales I've been in sales for years um hated it absolutely hated it oh and prior to that sorry i should i should also mention i was having panic attacks as well so because my you know because my the life i was leading didn't sit well with me um, on a spiritual level i was full of fear you know i was full of anxiety um i was taking painkillers i was taking like painkillers every day because i had a bad back which i actually realized was just because of the stress so anyway so i made this move and i went out to grand canaria and just before i left a good friend of mine who was a bit of an entrepreneur, she said to me, what's the three things that you would do if money was no object? So I said, uh, making music, because obviously I've been a DJ for years and love music. I said, painting, because I, I did a fine art degree and I'd always loved artwork. And I said, and, and helping people, those are the three things I'd do. And she said, well, follow those dreams when you're out there. Just pursue those, those three things. 
So I said, okay, I will do. So, you know, my higher power gave me absolutely everything that I needed because I got out there and one of the first people that I met was a music producer. So we, we got, we became friends and uh, we decided to make some music together. So, you know, we went into his studio and made some, made some music and, I enjoyed it, but I realised through doing that, it wasn't what I wanted to do as a career. At the same time, the, where that guy worked in the day was like a, a hostel. So I met all these cool people in this hostel. They were all kind of holidaying and stuff. They were like the, the people hanging around with. And they had this lovely um, balcony where it overlooked the beach and the you know and the, the beautiful views and stuff. So I bought myself a load of art, art materials, easel, um, canvases, paints and everything. And I used to go up there during the day and just paint on the rooftop. Absolutely loved it. Um, but again, I realised I didn't want to do it as a career. So I gave all these paintings to the, the people that I'd met, which was lovely. Um, so I settled on the helping people. I was like, okay, so what am I going to do? How am I going to do this? How am I going to achieve this? So I... Uh, contacted my parents and I said like I'm going to come back to the UK I've decided that I think I'm going to go down the counselling route I think I'm going to go down go back to university train to be a counsellor or a therapist and that's going to be the career that I'm going to follow and my, my parents were a little bit like well how are you going to afford that like you're going to get yourself in loads of debt again and you know and all this kind of stuff I'd only just paid off all my debt from my previous um stint at university and um Another higher power moment, all of a sudden, my mom emails me with um, an advertisement for a role as a trainee drug and alcohol counsellor in prisons in, in the UK. And the stipulation was you had to have a minimum of three years sobriety. And I was four years sober at the time. Yeah, it was four, four years, yeah, not five. And um, I was like, that's amazing. So I moved back to London, um, did the training, got the job. And then I worked as a drug and alcohol practitioner in prisons for about three years. Um, and then from there, another higher power moment, I met my partner and also my partner's somebody that I've known since I was 12 years old. So Gran Canaria holds a special place in my heart, actually, because we met in Gran Canaria when we were on holiday um, and we'd got back in touch via social media. And basically she'd come down to see me in London we'd got together and I wanted to move up to be, to live with, you know, with near her in, in the Midlands. And all of a sudden this job comes available in a prison in the Midlands. And the weird thing about it was that apparently no jobs had come available in that prison for years and years and years. And then all of a sudden this job was available. So anyway, obviously I took the job. It was an internal transfer. I got that job. And when I moved here, so, so that's where I live now is in the Midlands in the UK. Um, I started, uh, I just started writing my first book and through the process of writing that book and then the, the, the series of books, I'd always had it in the back of my mind that I wanted to do a podcast, but I'm sure you can relate to, you just don't feel confident to do it. Do you? I mean, especially when you first start, you're like, I hate the sound of my voice for a start. <laughs> <laughs> do I, do I really sound like that? And then you're like, I've got, I've not got the confidence to do this, you know, all that stuff. It all comes up, doesn't it? But anyway, I'm really glad that I, that I, that I pursued it, um, and that's how I kind of got into where, you know, to where I am now because the, the podcast has been running for a couple of years. Um, the life coaching was kind of like a, 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 the next step, really, because obviously my my podcast was get going further afield and. The next thing that happened was I was interviewing 
Dennis, Dennis Berry, who became my life coach. So um, I was working with him and he kept saying to me, you'd be great at this. You know, you should do, you should do this. And I was like, yeah, I kind of would, but I haven't got the time. And like, it might be something that I'll do in the future. And then the pandemic hit. And when the pandemic hit, I was like, I'm stuck in, I'm stuck in every single night. Like I've got nothing to do other than go, go on zoom meetings, you know, go on the like kind of 12 step meetings. I can't do that every single night. So, um, yeah, I, I did the uh, the life coaching qualification and um, and that's kind of where I'm at today. And one thing that I do want to mention, because this is quite a controversial thing, which um, you may or may not have heard about or you may be interested in it. You may have even done it yourself. Um, so three years ago, I was, um, for, for my first book, I was researching uh, traditional medicines. So ayahuasca, peyote, et cetera, et cetera. And the person that introduced me to the idea of it was actually in 12 step fellowships. And I, my initial reaction was, as it says in the big book, contempt prior to investigation. I was like, not a chance relapse all day long. Anyway, when I was, when I was um, researching it for the book, I started to understand that psychedelics aren't addictive. And also they deal with emotional trauma. And this was something that was quite interesting to me because I'd already come to the realization that as we've, we've talked about, this is all about emotional intelligence. It's all about, you know, being able to re respond rather than react to your emotions. It's all about mental illness. Um, and what I was reading was that these are actually medicines for the soul, really, you know. So um, my partner and I split up. We, we, we The relationship ended. And I didn't know whether it was the right decision. I was kind of like, I thought it was. And then a few weeks later, I thought to myself, I'm not, I'm not sure about this. And I really needed to know because it was either stay where I am in the Midlands and get back together and, you know, go on to do the things that we're doing now, like get married and have a baby and all that kind of stuff, or move back to where I was originally from the rainy city. <laughs> and, um, I decided to go on this retreat, this ayahuasca retreat. And you know what, Tamar? It was actually the greatest spiritual experience that I've ever had in my life. It was completely and utterly revelatory. And that was what my third book was about. It was uh, called Together in Ayahuasca Experience. And it, it just completely transformed my life because for the first time ever, totally made me realize that I was loved on a deep level by, you know, like all that insecurity that I'd had before. They don't like me. They don't really love me. All that kind of stuff gone. It categorically helped me to understand that Adele is my twin flame, my soulmate, whatever you want to call it. And that we were meant to be together categorically helped me to understand that I wasn't meant to be with my ex partner and that we were on different paths and that she didn't need any of this stuff. Um, it was unbelievable. So from that, a couple of years later, I did. Um, I had a psilocybin experience with a friend that I met on that retreat. And again, that consolidated all this emotional stuff. So I have used psychedelics. And, and, the, and one of the main reasons why I did was because Bill Wilson did as well. Because Bill Wilson had experiences with LSD. And I, you know, I uncovered that in, in my research. And you may or may not know this as well. You know, the 12 and 12. That was actually written by Bill and his sponsee, Tom, after they did their LSD sessions. 
And that is where that book came from. So it's very interesting. Once you've done psychedelics and you then read that book, you understand understand it on a much deeper level. So yeah, so that's something that I don't promote it. I don't go to meetings and say, look, everybody should be going and doing psychedelic. But what I do say is that for anybody who is really, really struggling with the spirituality of the program and, you know, they might be, like, let's say that they're, they're new to recovery and they just can't, they just can't get into the idea of God or a higher power. If you have one of those experiences, that would change fundamentally. You can't have one of those experiences and then say to people, there's no such thing as a higher power. It's impossible. Absolutely impossible. So that's kind of where I'm at. And where I'm at, where I'm at today, just in general with my recovery, and I mentioned this before we started uh, recording, I've just done the steps again, or I'm just doing, just started doing the steps again, and I'm doing it um, the the back to basics program, uh, which was originally kind of taken from how Doctor Bob used to take uh, people through the, the the steps, and he used to do it in a couple of days, so he'd usually do it in like a weekend retreat, and they'd kind of go through it hard, you know, steps one to twelve done, and I've done it very quickly, so I did steps one, two, and three in an hour, you know, I did step four in a couple of hours, well three or four hours obviously me and my sponsor aren't in the same place so we're doing it all via kind of social media and uh, phone calls and stuff and i'm doing my step five tonight straight after this this podcast but just doing it in this new way you know and and we're what we're looking at is you know the the kind of uh the tone of this podcast is all about emotions and what what was what it was explained to me was get to the root get to the causes and conditions you know what really annoys me, like one thing that really, really annoys me in recovery is when, and it is in the big book, so fair play, because people are just reciting what they, what they hear. But people say alcohol is a symptom of the illness. It isn't a symptom of the illness. It's the medication for the illness. The, sim- the symptom is not, like drinking is not a symptom as far as I'm concerned. And the other thing that I don't agree with is it's not an allergy either, because I still drink mouthwash that has alcohol in it. And if I had an allergy to, to alcohol, I would be drinking. Or I'd have an actually I'd have an anaphylactic shock <laughs> if I if I had if I had if I had an actual allergy to it in the same way as peanuts, it would kill me. And it doesn't do that. And the reason why it doesn't do that is because you don't have an allergy to it. It's 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 bad medicine basically that, that we're using to try to medicate ourselves. So I know that, that that you absolutely agree and relate to what what we're talking about when it comes to all this, but not everybody does. And I think, you know, it, it, it can become a little bit frustrating when you go to 12-step meetings and people are just reciting things from a book that was written in the 1930s. They didn't have all the information that we've got now. And not only that, but those people aren't necessarily going out and doing their own research. And you talked about you know neuroscience like that. This book that I've written, um, another another plug, another plug. Yeah, all is one. <laughs> this book that's it talks a lot about that. You know, it talks a lot about you know how science can explain spirituality and vice versa. You know, a lot of the things that the the great mystics of thousands of years ago were saying, science is now starting to prove. The, the all is one aspect that is actually the truth everything is made of energy everything is made of consciousness we're all manifesting from exactly the same thing 
it's not a, it's not that's not mysticism that's a scientific fact um so i think that you know for me i believe that recovery is beginning to evolve i think because i'm i'm hearing more i'm stepping away from you know certain 12 step fellowships and certain belief systems and moving towards other belief systems and still within the 12 step you know program but i gravitate towards people that are just much more open minded and um and don't if anybody says to me all the answers that you need are in the first 164 pages of the big book I just walk away from them and uh, I smile. I'll smile and shake their hand and, and and be pleasant as pie. And I just I just think to myself, you're just delusional, you know. Like there's so much more on offer out there. So yeah, and as you know, I, I like to rant. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that. And I mean, I feel like we could just chat about this subject for hours um, because it, you're right. There's so much more out there, and it's why I wrote my second book, Beyond Recovery, because. I finally, I've created a, a life that I can be just, I'm fulfilled, I'm happy, I'm content. I'm willing to do the work every day to make myself just a little bit better, right, than before. But if I would have stayed stuck in that bubble of this is the way it is, this is all I'm going to do, I probably would have relapsed by now. And I think that being more open-minded and realizing that, hey, you know what, there is so much more outside of recovery than you could even imagine. That's what I'm super passionate about. So, you know, what I want to be mindful, obviously, of time for you as well, because you could have to go do a step five. But, you know, what motivates you today? Well, the core of what motivates me on a, on a personal level is being there for my family, you know, like I've become a very much a family man. And I think that it was another revelation to me to learn that I was actually capable of loving somebody else's children because I've got two stepkids and I love them as though they're my own kids. And that relationship has deepened, you know, I've known them for about five years and I'm, I'm massively motivated by seeing that they're, you know, that they're okay and helping them to, you know, um, get around the pitfalls of life so to speak and then all of a sudden you know my daughter was born 15 months ago and that was just this spiritual experience you know this unbelievable um gift that i've been given you know because not only has it been a gift for me but it's been a gift gift for the whole family because like my dad now has got an opportunity to be there for this person you know for for his granddaughter and he is He's, he's amazing you know like my grand my, my mom and my dad look after her three days a week and they're absolutely unbelievable grandparents i've got my partner's uh mom who also looks after um our daughter as well and she's unbelievable so this little baby she's just got all this love you know and my partner i mean the, my partner's got many fantastic attributes and you know i could sit here all day and sing her praises but one of the things, apart from the fact that I was obviously very, very attracted to her and we're just like soulmates, it was just that I could tell what an amazing mother she is. And that, I was like, if I'm going to have a child with anybody, it, it, it's going to be you, you know. So that's kind of what what motivates me is to kind of ensure that my family has got the best life that they can have. And then on a professional level, I just try and keep it as simple as like, 
you know, how can I help the people that are working for me? Because being a manager at work, I feel responsible for, um, you know, for, for their happiness, I suppose, to a certain degree. And I don't mean that in a codependent way. I just mean that, you know, at this moment in time, we've got a couple of people who uh, that, I work, that work for me that have got big issues going on, you know. And I just want to be there for them. You know, in the past, I didn't care. I just genuinely didn't care. I didn't care what was going on in other people's lives. I could sit there and smile and, and you know, and pretend that I cared. You know, there was no empathy. Um, there might have been a little bit of compassion, but there was no empathy. Whereas I can tell that I'm I'm growing in, in empathy because when the day is finished, I'm still thinking about those people. I'm putting myself in their shoes and thinking, God, that must be really tough for them, you know. And that's completely different to how I how I operate, you know. When I wake up in the morning, the first thing that I think about is me. <laughs> <laughs> and I think about myself all day long, like, you know, oh, I want those trainers. Uh, how can I get more money for this? Uh, I need to, I need I need time to write my book. I need time to do my part. You know, it's constantly like to step outside of that and be like, right, hang on a minute. What does everybody else need? You know, does my partner want a cup of cup of tea? Does the does the uh, you know the ironing need doing? Does the the cleaning need doing? Uh, do, do the pots need emptying out of the, uh, the the dish? You know, the dishes in the sink, all that stuff. It sounds to to somebody who's not selfish, sounds ridiculous, but to somebody who's selfish, self-centered, and fearful, and dishonest. You know, for all the reasons that you know, environmental and genetic or whatever, it's hard to change. You know, it's hard to change. But I think that what this going through the steps, the way I'm doing it now, and what I'm going to continue doing is just taking that time to stop. You know, breathe, pray, speak to somebody, and think exactly about what I'm doing, because. The one thing that I think is key is knowing that there's a ripple effect. You know, if I'm if I'm thinking about the way that I'm behaving and I'm considering and responding to what's going on within me rather than just reacting and running around like a headless chicken, everybody else around me is going to be feeling better. So that's kind of where I'm at, you know, is... is just trying to think of others ahead of myself yeah and it's so true i mean i was the same way i'm always thinking about myself so i have to really make a concerted effort and i think that's one of the gifts about being in the space that we're in with doing the podcast and the coaching is you actually get to make your purpose about other people right and yeah. it's not just about ourselves anymore so john if people want to learn more about you get your books i feel like we have to do a part two of this show because there's so much more we could talk about how can people get a hold of you uh if you just go to www.lifeinrecovery.co.uk everything's on there my books my podcast um links to social media and um yeah, it's been a real pleasure having this conversation. So we'll definitely do it again sometime. I think it'd be really nice. I don't know if we, we, we didn't discuss this, but it'd be really nice if we can, if I can put it up on my podcast as well. And then like you said, we'll do it. We'll do a part two as well. 
Absolutely. That sounds like a great plan. But uh, thank you for taking the time tonight for you. I guess it's morning still for me. Yeah. But I really appreciate it. Been a pleasure. Thanks very much. Well, that wraps up another episode of the Road Beyond Recovery podcast. Thanks again for joining us. Make sure you go and check out John's books. There will be links in the show notes so you can get a hold of him. Anyway, guys, I hope you can join us on another call, the Collaboration Zone Zoom calls. They are a lot of fun. They run every second week. You can find these calls or register for them at www.theroadforward.ca slash collaboration zone. And I hope to see you on the next call. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Road Beyond Recovery. Did you know that our dreams can become a reality? When you determine your purpose in life and you allow that purpose to guide you, anything is possible. It just takes action. Don't wait until you're ready. Start to create the life you were truly meant to live right now. I am super passionate about my mission to help people live up to their true potential. So if you want to learn more, check out my website at www.theroadforward.ca. And until next week, keep exploring what lies beyond recovery for you.